Hi, this is Dr. Carl Goldcamp. If you're interested in learning about the ketogenic diet like I was to save my own life, then this is probably the podcast for you. Eight years ago, I knew nothing about it. Six years ago, it saved my life. Three years ago, I started researching and talking with some of the authorities in the field and attending medical conferences about this to understand why and how keto so dramatically changed my and my wife's Judy's lives. The purpose of this podcast is to share our journey of discoveries with you in understanding how keto is so effective in improving so many different conditions, from obesity, epilepsy, diabetes, infertility, MS, Alzheimer's, heart disease, to name a few. So take a step away from all the hype you've probably heard and roll up your sleeves with me and join me weekly to explore this living miracle that anyone can access. We'll talk science, we'll talk food. We'll explore its history and evolution to today, which is that the sheer wonder of the ketogenic way of eating has changed untold number of lives, unlike anything before it. And in case I forget to mention it, please join our Facebook group, Keto Naturopath. Hi, this is Dr. Goldcamp, and welcome back to another episode of the Keto Naturopath. I wanted to continue a little bit on this topic of seasonal affecting disorder, affected disorder, and looking into some of the mental disorders. I would like to go further on some of those, even though we'll be talking about the same variables in each of those, and how on one way, when we talk about these conditions medically, we tend to talk about it in a rather superficial aspect. Even when we get into things like schizophrenia, bipolar, bipolar 1, bipolar 2, depression, seasonal SAD, it still says, well, you know, do you fit the diagnosis? So you have to have a list of things, a certain diagnosis. And so you look up in your DSM-5 and you see if you have all of or most of or whatever the variables are that you need for these particular diagnoses to say, yep, you have this. Then that allows you, one, to have your insurance cover it, and then allows you to, to get prescribed or the door opens to a list of prescription medications, which may or may not help you. And depending on your particular patients for that particular process, you should go through medication after medication to find out what works for you, question all the medications. And none of that do I have anything to do with, nor really want to get along with, because I find that should be the last resort, not the first resort. So that kind of medicine, which is conventional medicine here in the United States, that's kind of the first step. Let's come on in. Let's First of all, you go to a, a counselor, a psychiatrist that has the prescriptive rights, the ability to prescribe those things, and hopefully has the skills to talk to you and listen to you talk. So in part, I was thinking about, gee, I'm going to go through the diagnosis of what some of these things are. And let's just, I'll go over these things because they cover a lot. So let's say you have a major depressive disorder. What are the conditions? What are the actual variables that you have to have to meet the DSM-5 criteria? Well, you need to have very depressed moods or what they call, that is, get no satisfaction in anything. Anahedonia, another fan, so just no satisfaction. Nothing pleases you. You have to have an appetite disturbance. Either you're eating a lot or you have no appetite at all. Both are appetite disturbances. You have a sleep disturbance. You're either sleeping too long or you just think you're done after a couple hours. You know, two hours are good for you. 
you have psychomotor agitation, you just can't sit still, or retardation, so you're either slower or faster, daily fatigue or loss of energy, feelings of worthlessness or guilt, difficulty concentrating, and suicidal ideation without a specific plan. So you need to have five of those seven. So that's for a depressive disorder. Now let me go to a more complete list of other related issues. And I'm going to tell you how, if you look at it at a medication level as last and not first, we should be able to at least mitigate the thing in the end that needs to be treated with medications. So for instance, bipolar one, if people, a lot of people don't know there's a difference in, you have bipolar one and bipolar two, and often people, they have both. So here we go. Bipolar one, you need to have three or more of the following, a very inflated self-esteem or grandiosity, a decreased need for sleep, kind of relates to what I just told you about, psychomotor agitation, ditto, feel the pressure to keep talking. You're always talking, always talking. Nobody can get a word in edgewise. Uh, these are episodic, by the way. Racing thoughts, distractibility, activities with high consequences. You know, you're spending thousands of dollars. You're you're promiscuous more than you've ever been before, dangerously so, uh, and you're doing other high-risk activities. You suddenly have an increase in goal orientation. You know, you're going to start that business and all these good ideas come pounding back to you. You're going to just start doing today. In bipolar 2, those are kind of the, of the manic episode side of things. This, all these are diag. I'm going to actually let it go. You get my point that when we start slicing things so specifically in terms of do you have this or not have this, you know, and a person has to be trained to listen and extract these particular checkboxes, that's fine. I'm not disagreeing with that. I'm saying if that only leads to medication, then that is a serious flaw. However, if we're looking at we need to protect this person from self-harm, we need to protect society in general from are they on a path of a more harmful outcome, well, then that justifies that medication. But however we get in there, we need to look at other things. And what we need to look at other things are obviously diet and obviously genes. So I want to back up a little bit. I want to back up to SAD, seasonal affective disorder. And so most people know is, oh, seasonal affective disorder, just bright lights. Okay, what is the bright lights? What's, let's say it works for everybody, which it does not. What is the bright lights about? Well, the bright lights is about melatonin. Why is it about melatonin? Well, if you live in the north in the winter, and by the way, you have to ask yourself, why do Inuits not get depressed in the winter? And they have a long winter. Uh, you can say, well, they have a slightly different genetic background. That's a that's a good answer. Covers a lot of bases, doesn't it? I don't think that's it. Exactly. That's that's a component because we're going to look at that component today. Now, so it has to do with melatonin. And so the thing is, when you see sunlight and the sunlight of, now we're speaking of blue, of bright blue, think of a sun sky, noon, is they consider that a blue light, by the way. And that's why the concern is of being on your computer at night, you're getting the blue lights of computers, even though there's an app feature you can do that will tone that down at night so you don't get that. But the blue of high noon day in the summer or the blue of your computer laptop or desktop is received by what they call the optic chiasm and it goes to the pineal gland and it stops the production of your melatonin. Okay, so 
Daylight stops the production of your melatonin. Darkness increases your melatonin. You need melatonin. You don't need it forever and you don't need it 24-7. And so in the winter, some people are very sensitive for too much melatonin. And so consequently, they don't really get great sleep. They don't sleep from five to five to nine, these long nights. They don't sleep well at all and they get depressed and it leads to very problematic outcomes for them. So let's talk about melatonin. And so there's the light, the idea of light therapy. You wake up with the bright light in the winter and you can wake up in the bright light in the summer as well, but we'll assume that's the norm. In the summer, it's more about, in your summer times, whatever north or southern hemisphere, it's about making your room dark and cool at night so you sleep well. In the the winter, it's about making sure you wake up with some bright lights. So right now, the desk I'm in, and I've always, ever since I lived in Seattle back in the 90s, is that I've been a big believer in bright lights, and they did work for me. So it, it is the big believer in the melatonin aspect for me. So melatonin and serotonin and tryptophan are all very related, and I wanted to go through that because people tend to think, oh, I'll take tryptophan if I'm depressed because that's going to get my serotonin up and that will get my melatonin up. So let's take that. It's a pathway and they're all on the same pathway. And long ago, uh, I think it was in the 80s when tryptophan first became a supplement, there was a problem with the manufacturing of it. It wasn't that it was wrong. It was that in that particular process of manufacturing of the Japanese company, there was a contaminant in there. And in the contaminant of tryptophan, It made for very dangerous outcomes. Some people died from taking tryptophan and so on and so forth. So then they banned tryptophan. So you couldn't take tryptophan, even though it was the process that made that tryptophan was the problem, not so much tryptophan. Tryptophan has only recently become available. A thing called 5-hydroxytryptophan is the thing that was available. So anyways, tryptophan goes to serotonin and serotonin goes to melatonin. And yes, there are such antidepressants called SSRI, serotonin reuptake inhibitors which tends to boost your serotonin levels for a while, and then that fades. But if you are deficient in tryptophan, then taking tryptophan will probably be remarkable, like I've said about other deficiencies. If you're not deficient in tryptophan, and you start taking tryptophan, it will boost your serotonin, and it will probably also boost your melatonin, and depending on time of year, it might make you more depressed. So in the winter, if you're making more melatonin for yourself, when you already have plenty of melatonin, you could become more depressed. So it's not always a good thing to do. It is really interesting though, if you go online and just type in tryptophan deficient diets, and what you'll get are a number of abstracts from PubMed in which they've done experiments, primarily on mice and monkeys, to see what happens when there's a serotonin deficiency. So they induced the serotonin deficiency by withholding tryptophan. Tryptophan is an essential amino acid. It is something you need to eat. You need to have it in your diet. And gosh, what foods do you think are highest in tryptophan? I know we all tend to say, oh, we fall asleep after Thanksgiving from eating too much turkey. You're onto it. It actually, it's lean turkey and lean chicken. And after that, it's more meats. So it's interesting that if you're a carnivore or ketivore or whatever this word is now, if you're a big protein eater via natural foods, which is something I always talk about, you should be fine. You should not have to worry about your tryptophan and therefore you should not have to worry about your serotonin and your melatonin. So the sunlight affects melatonin only. So 
when you, uh, you heard about the brown glasses or the dark glasses people wear, well, that's when they're trying to block themselves from the fluorescent light during the day. You know, and they're inside and so on. And many people tend to think that it works, but that's about a melatonin thing. Melatonin, we would give in much higher doses to cancer patients. We're talking 20 milligrams a day, which is way more than the one to three milligrams people would take for jet lag and so on and so forth. So extremely high. And primarily the thinking there was that it was as an antioxidant, a high antioxidant, which is true. So now let me introduce something. It's like, well, how can you create a bad outcome? Or what what is the opposite of simply saying, all right, tryptophan goes to serotonin to melatonin. And now that we know that, we all can be happier by making sure our diet has tryptophan in it. Therefore, the others are are adequate. Well, if you are stressed, so stress can be from anything. So we're talking about long-term chronic stress, not so much the bear is chasing you in the woods and you're running for your life. That's episodic and that's usually rather short. You either survive or you get killed. <laughs> Either way, it's a short period of time. But chronic stress are from finances, job, bad relationship, etc. Anything that elevates your cortisol, anything that elevates your cortisol is going to directly degrade, prevent your tryptophan from going to your serotonin. It goes down an entirely different pathway. So it blocks. Tryptophan will not convert to serotonin if you have high cortisol, if you're stressed. So when people are are stressed and angry all the time, you can bet that they are serotonin deficient and it's just going to get worse. So on the stress aspect, on the cortisol aspect, we also know that cortisol increases blood sugar and blood sugar is like having glucose. Obviously, it's the same. Elevated glucose is going to get up your insulin and then elevated insulin has all its other issues, okay? But on the cortisol specifically, it blocks tryptophan from going to serotonin. So you are, by being stressed, going to create a serotonin deficiency. So as an independent variable, it would be wise to stress control, to realize what stresses you, what doesn't stress you. That comes with, I say, maturity. It comes with living life, certain issues you just don't want to get involved with, certain issues you don't want to get too wound up over, right? You can't do anything about it. Certain times you want to learn to meditate, to pull back from the angst of whatever your situation is. These are all really beneficial things that you can do. I wouldn't go jumping to, so let's say you're all stressed and you're taking tryptophan. That is not a good thing because where the tryptophan goes down a a whole different pathway called Kyurian pathway ends up to some neurotoxic products. So you don't want to feed that pathway because you're serotonin deficient. You would just be exacerbating a bad situation and making it worse. I know this is a little bit of a a technical side of things, but I'm saying these are things that you can should be aware about because just meditation, just meditation will drop your cortisol should you be feeling stressed. The stereotypic just count to 10 is going to help your cortisol. It's going to help your serotonin and so on. So have that. And knowing that those are precursors to melatonin, that potentially is a good thing. More, it's a more of a summertime than a wintertime. The bright lights is about turning off your melatonin. So when you wake up, wake up with bright lights, have bright lights at your desk, and you'll immediately feel it. Uh, I certainly immediately feel it. But as the background, of course, check your vitamin D. And we've been through that before. Here's where I would advise you to go to our evolving uh, YouTube station because some things 
have to be visual. And so I've gone through looking at the genome aspects of vitamin D called VDR, vitamin D receptor. And there are three polymorphisms, three SNPs that are going to make that receptor very problematic. So what do I mean? I mean, you could have normal vitamin D levels by lab test, which is serum vitamin D. And these labs aren't really going to be telling you that much if you have all of these or any of these polymorphisms. And if you're heterozygous form, you're going to be slowing down the ability of the vitamin or incapacitating the vitamin D receptor. So you're going to need arguably a higher amount. So knowing these two different factors, the genomic, which you can find out, ask your doctor for, to run an independent VDR, vitamin D receptor, polymorphism test for you. In the very least, they should be able to do that. I say, I want to check my vitamin D serum levels. That's 25-OH, vitamin D3. And I want to check to see what my vitamin D receptors are. In lieu of that, you can go to one of the genomic companies that map out your genome. That is, the genome is that you have a that you can do something about, it can intervene with, and they will come back and say, yeah, here's your vitamin D receptors. It's very common. It's, it's used in all of these. So you can do it that way. Ask your doc. He'll run it through Quest or LabCorp. Go to a company, do it yourself. You can do 23andMe and take the raw data and send it to a number of other companies. But cover it and know that about yourself. Nice thing about genomic work, once you did it, you did it. You know, it's not going to change. It's not like blood work. It could be different in a month or two or six or a year. Your genome's your genome, unless they discover more genes, but I don't think they will. What I understand, they have it all covered. So there's that. Those are two things you need to look at that are in addition to the whole sunlight factor. So don't be a simpleton. I'm sorry if that sounds condescending. Don't be a simpleton and simply check the box and say, I'm getting, I have my bright lights in the winter and I'm not bothered. And thank you very much for telling me that. Well, that's been out for about the last 40 years, bright light therapy. Check your vitamin Ds as well. Okay, let me go back to genome again. The genome, when you get a genome panel done, and 23andMe, here's the downside about 23andMe, and yes, I did 23andMe way back when they got started because that was better. You got more bang for your buck than you had to, than you did if you ordered it one mutation at a time through your lab company. Uh, that was very painstakingly slow, but that's where I got started with doing this for our patients. Here, let me check the MTHFR. Let me check MTRR. Let me check it. Let me check that. And so you start building up your familiarity with these various mutations. You can't quite spot them, but you can suspect when somebody might have an issue. So now you're going to go to a genome company and get this list of your mutations, which isn't going to change, which is nice. So it's a one-time cost. And you're going to comb through and you're going to come to what I call intersections. That is more than one. So when people talk about MTHFR, which is methyl tetrahydrofolate reductase, that's just one. That's, that's one gene and the gene, sorry, that's one enzyme. And the enzyme has a gene that codes for that enzyme. And there's a number of different variations of that gene. So they call them polymorphisms. And some of these polymorphisms slow down the ability of that gene to process whatever its action is supposed to do. So every enzyme has a gene, usually a set of genes, or I should, should say a variety of genes. Not everybody has the same one. They're not all made from the same factor, if you will. And so 
if you have a slightly aberrant mutation that slows things down, that in itself might not be a problem if you have other genes that are there, other enzymes, and the genes for those enzymes that compensate for that. So that's why you can't point to just one thing. Oh, I have this and therefore I have a problem. Well, it's usually, let's look at the intersection. So if you went driving and you have an intersection, a four-way stop, let's say, we know, and we know that some intersections are five-way stops. That's really chaotic. Or some are even a turnaround, a roundabout, and they're even worse, that you know, you go, okay, this one intersection being partially blocked does not make it impossible for you to use that intersection. It just makes it problematic. Well, then if there's another block, another part of that intersection, that makes it a little more complicated. And then if another partial block at another part of that intersection, it's even more complicated. So consequently, you now have, for my story, my example, three levels of complications. And that's how I look at these. You look at the context. You look at a, a fairly common intersection and the enzymes, the genes for the enzymes that lead into this intersection. And that's how you'll find out or be able to deduce if somebody has a particular problem that you can do something about. So this isn't just saying, hey, you got a gene and oh my gosh, I'm sorry, you're now going to die 50 years younger than other people. No, it's nothing about that. These are genes you're looking for because now you can do something about these. Uh, they usually mean there's cofactors that are required, and you can figure out how to take these cofactors, aka various supplements, that will vastly improve. I've already seen this so many times that I know it to be true. But often there's a still some trial and error. You know, not everything is, oh, I got this gene, and I get this supplement, and I put them together, and I am so good. Some people talk that way, by the way. Usually it's the people that are very ignorant about their genes and very ignorant about supplements. Nothing is usually that black or white. Every so often you hit a home run, but every time I get a story like that from a patient or a client waiting for the crash to happen in a month or two or three later when they go, I didn't work that much anymore. It's because, well, if I was involved, I wouldn't look at just one gene. You have to look at the bigger picture so you can make this sustainable change in that person's life and explain what you're doing so they can do it without your help in the future because it's their life that they have to take care of for the rest of their lives. That's the objective. So now we have that. We looked at the genome. We found out on this particular report what polymorphisms you have and which ones are bad enough and what locations those are in that we need to focus our attention. And we need to take that knowledge from that report to the patient that we know. So it's the patient saying, I'm stressed, I'm overweight, I can't get pregnant. You know, what is their story? And we're looking for a match there. We're not just taking this report and showering them an array of supplements and saying, I'm going to plug in every little problem you have and you are going to be shazam great from now on because more than likely you'll do too much for some genes and not enough for other genes and you'll just have a slightly different problem or maybe you'll just have the same problem but worse. So it, it needs to be trial and error. It needs to be you work with somebody who's obviously learned about these particular genetic polymorphisms and addresses them in the context of what your life's problem's about. So when it comes to seasonal affecting disorder, it is quite common for these people. So you had the vitamin D, you had the light stuff, right? And now you have, you're looking at a little more deeply, it is very common for people to have polymorphisms, SNPs, that are problematic for neurotransmitter production. 
Okay, so you can have a number of neurotransmitter enzymes that are slow. They're not responding very quickly. Some have to do with a thing called methylation. Others might have to do with conversion of neurotransmitters from one form to another, or making of the serotonin, or the making of the dopamine, or the making of the norepinephrine or epinephrine. So you have to look at these things and saying, gosh, that's interesting. And I also want to say is that it's reasonable for somebody listening to this conversation and saying, what, are you trying to say that we're all sort of deformed? And when we get right down to it, we have all these problems and these problems have to be addressed. What I'm saying is you may have these polymorphisms, these enzyme problems, enzymatic problems, genetically on paper in the blueprints, but you may be functioning perfectly because other enzymes and other genes is compensated for that. So just because you have a polymorphism doesn't mean you have a problem. So start from the problem, the chief complaint, the story, the disorder, the condition in front of you, and work your way to the relationship with these particular polymorphisms. And that's how you do it. You don't go chasing, chasing things. Oh, I have this one. You know, there's Facebook groups that I'm part of. And you see these people, you know, how'd they get into this group? They're asking these questions like, oh, I tried this. Has anybody else tried this particular supplement for this particular polymorphism? And not mention anything about, well, how was your life? Was your life fine before? And are you expecting a, a dramatic change? So there's a degree that door is open to huge stupidity. And that's why there is an essence of what I call a cottage industry of so many companies that are coming out now that are willing to either upload that's 23andMe raw data and give you their report, or the next level is they have their own labs and they're going to take your own saliva and give you their report, which is a better way of doing it and keeping your data private so it doesn't go anywhere. And by the way, the other thing about 23andMe, it's shared with whoever, shared with the FBI or whatever. So it's public information. In one way, if they use it anonymously, you know, never, nobody had access to that information, but used it kind of like I use the database of my patients. Uh, it's anonymous, but I get to sort of see patterns and it is very beneficial to have larger and larger amounts of data. But I don't have to know those individuals after I initially did. So um, I don't know why it's they've made themselves open, but there's plenty of companies now you can go to that are quite good and you can get your own isolated, non-shared, raw data and report and most companies will probably even give you their book on how to interpret their information, but don't get overwhelmed. It is variable. It's an unnecessary variable. Take it one related context at a time, and then you can progress and put this into your life, and it's something you can do. So it's not like a defect you have. But so back to these things like bipolar 1, bipolar 2, schizophrenia, deep depression, uh, seasonal affected disorder, is that there's a level there that I would say, in my view, from my experience, granted, look at the people who would come to me, they, not somebody who would go to a plumber, because we're very different, so we'd have different experiences, that I would say it's highly related, way over 50%. And I would find a few things just on the genome aspect. So here's another thing. When we hear things about oh, binge eating and depression, well, let's say some of the factors that it has covered were about depression, vitamin D, the light serotonin, the genome. Those are pretty dramatic variables that you can look at. But now let's go to what this podcast is always related to, which is ketosis. 
ketosis really comes down to being low carbohydrates or no carbohydrates in your diet. Your body is forced to burn fat, to pull in energy sources from fat to make ketone bodies, which happens in the liver. Okay then. So by doing that, by getting to the point that you're producing some ketones, and when you first get into ketosis, you're producing a lot of ketones, not a lot, but in the range of three to seven and maybe even up to eight. That's the way it was for me, but your body is going to get more efficient at A, producing it and B, consuming it. So your numbers per measurement are going to seem lower, but it's not that they're any less effective. It's just that you've really tightened up that efficiency. So when you produce ketones, they are very supportive and are basically an upper ketogenic bodies, which are three, right? You had the beta-hydroxybutyrate, which is the big one, acetoacetate, which is really hard to measure, and then you have acetone, which is given off in your breath and some in your urine. So of those three, you'll find that that increases your GABA side of things. And you now have your a seesaw here, a semi-neurotransmitter seesaw of GABA, which is, GABA is, think of it as meditation. It's, I want to say it's an inhibitory, but it's not necessarily inhibitory. It's calming. So use the word calming or beaming. Beaming is another way. So you're self-content and you beam. You don't have to run around the room. You don't have to jump up and scream. It's the opposite of that. So often they find with all, and the opposite of GABA is glutamic or glutamate. It's excitatory. So you'll find these are opposite substances or opposite neurotransmitters. And uh, you can self-induce one or the other. You can make yourself excited and you're going to be gabagenuric or glutamic-based. Autistic kids, one of the things they find is they really can't shut off the excitatory, which is the glutamine side of things, uh, the, the glutamic side of excitatory neurons. And so how do they balance that? It's not part of it, yeah, it's behavioral. And that's where I started with these genomes, by the way. That's where I got induced in uh, 2003 with MTHFR. And I thought, oh, it's fascinating. I didn't have a large practice of autistic kids, but of those that I had, children, they all had homozygous for both chromosomes and MTHFR. Here's a spoiler alert is autism does not come down to just having MTHFR. It's multifactorial, as you've probably heard by now. But that's one of the things in there that is pretty high. And if you have homozygous MTHFR, I would guess you'd be like me then. You'd be like my wife. The consequences are that you are technically, there's a good chance you would be on the spectrum. So they all call it the autistic spectrum disorder, which has to do with dyslexia on one end and highly functional Asperger's on the other and autism at the other end. So. That is a strong association, especially for the, uh, the dyslexia side of that spectrum. We now said on the dietary side of things, if we can drop our carbs, we're going to increase our ketones, we're going to get into ketosis, we're going to get into nutritional ketosis, which is pretty low, but it's constant. And consequently, just on those levels, regardless of your genes and everything, your mood is going to change. And suddenly, this disposition. If you've dropped your carbs, you checked your related SNPs, you did the sunlight, you did the vitamin D, 
I would guess if you did that for everybody who walked through a psychiatrist's office and got the diagnosis of bipolar 1, bipolar 2, schizophrenia, severe depression, OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder, you would severely change those. So it's a big variable that the reason it's not being looked at, it's too complicated. And I'm not saying that in any sort of condescending or facetious way. I'm saying, do we think they're actually going to go and look at your genome? Are we going to assume that they even have the education to understand what is required? No. So they're not going to go there. Um, Do we think there's enough knowledge out there for them to, and it is actually starting for some of the interviews, like with Dr. Chris Palmer, that they are starting to bring low-carb, ketogenic uh, diet to these conditions, and these conditions have dramatically changed because of that. So imagine adding these other things to it. That would be dramatic. So that was an earful today, and I hope you got something out of it. This is something that I take very seriously. I really think that this is a foundation that medicine should be built upon. This certainly is all about the program that we do, but you can do this for yourself. Find out about your genome. Find out about, uh, obviously, go to a low-carb diet. And in the very least, between those two things, it's a big deal. We obviously do a lot of lab tests, and we also do intracellular testing, which is, I'll get to that later. But this is where you should go. This is not to say that diet is not necessary. Diet is crucial. It's even more crucial for these people with specific polymorphisms. But if you have a good source of food, which means you keep processed foods out, and in doing that, you've now kept all these other things that can't be even put on the label, all this other crap, all these other chemicals that 100 years ago were never in food, that's no longer in your diet. That is a huge leg up, a very big leg up. So I hope there's a degree of common sense in that, that you simply see that aspect and start asking these questions. More to come. This will be explored, and I'll go on to slightly other labs, kind of labs. Uh, Not to be too technical, I just think you need to have a handle on this. All right? Till next time. Bye-bye. Hi, this is Dr. Goldcamp. I just wanted to encourage you to send in your questions to drgoldcamp at ketonaturopath.com. Many of you have, and so what I've done with these questions that I've gotten back to most of the people I email, but some of the questions that were so good, and if they're overlapping to other questions, I would combine them and try to put that into the topic of a podcast, either via one of the micro topics that are covered in an interview. As you know, we cover a lot of topics in any given interview or some of my own sort of reporting, if you will, on some of these issues. So please keep the questions coming. Feel free to send in an email and uh, I will get back to you. Stay listening, send in your questions, and I will definitely get back to you.